Welcome to the Calibre podcast, brought to you by the Watchers of Switzerland Group. In this episode, Mark Tolson, Global Head of Watch Buying, meets Simon de Burton, author and distinguished journalist for a passion for boats, vintage cars, motorcycles, and of course, watches. They discuss the relationship between watches and motor racing from early 20th century, icons of the genre such as the Hoya Monaco and Carrera, the Rolex Daytona and the Amiga Speedmaster, and their relevance to today's client. We're given interesting insights on auction prices for racing watches, and the gentlemen close on their favourite pieces. Hello everybody, uh, my name is Mark Tolson, uh, and I'm really lucky enough to be the head of watch buying at the Watches of Switzerland Group, and I'm joined today by Simon de Burton, author, journalist, uh, with a passion for boats, motorcycles, classic cars and watches, and, and writer of uh, amazing books, one particularly on Panerai, uh, others on uh, the world's most desirable cars and a century of classic motorcycles, to name to name but three. Welcome, Simon. Hello, Mark. Very nice to see you. Thanks for, for having me. Oh, no, it's, it's great. It's great. We're, we're, we're going to value your insight. Today's, uh, today's podcast is, um, is about racing watches. So, um, so for a, a man who writes about watches and cars, this is probably the perfect thing. So the association between watches and cars um, has, has been sort of long established and goes back to well, I don't know, the early 20th century. Um, do you want to talk a little bit, Simon, about, um, about how that relationship began? Yeah, well, it, it does go right back to really the beginning of... Um as a sort of modern world of motoring. Um, there were no car watches, obviously, in the 19th century, late 19th century, when you know the first Daimler was built. But um, strangely enough, it was at the end of the First World War when uh, car watches started to become interesting and, and more popular, And which is remarkable, really, because it was actually in 1918, just after the First World War had finished, um, there was a young watchmaker in, um, in Bienne, in Switzerland, and he realised that the, uh, the wealthy people who already had cars but probably couldn't really use them during the war, suddenly all came out of the woodwork. And um, they wanted to show each other, you know, that they had cars and they were kind of looking for a way of demonstrating that um, they belonged to a certain, I suppose you call it a kind of owner's club, you know. So what he did was, uh, to begin with, he made a watch in the shape of a Bugatti uh, radiator shell. So that's a horseshoe shape. And actually said, when you looked on the dial of the watch, it said Bugatti at the top. And the case was the, the horseshoe shape. And the dial was um, beautifully sort of engraved with a crisscross button, a bit like the, the, the sort of mesh on the radiator wheel. And um, so these were the, the, the first car watches. Really. They, they, they were called, uh, the, the dial name was Mido, M-I-D-O. And he made others as well. He made watches based on Buick radiator shells and Hispano Suiza as well. But the, um, the Bugatti ones, are the ones that have mainly survived and the ones that are probably best known. Um, and until about 15 years ago, you know, they would crop up at auction now and then, and perhaps they might make sort of 3,000, 5,000, something like that. But um, as the years have gone by, people realize, have realized how incredibly rare they are. Because they were only around about, I think, about 50 made. And last year, um, a guy bought a, a watch along to a very small auction house in France, one of these Mido Bugatti watches. And he said that he believed that it belonged to um, a Tory Bugatti himself, you know, the founder of Bugatti cars. And the auction house was a bit skeptical at first because, um, as I say, there are about sort of 50 or so of these watches around. But they did a lot of research and they managed to find all the serial numbers 
for every, every one of these Mido Bugatti watches that have been made. And they realized that this one had actually been given to um, Bugatti's son, who's called Michel, and he's now in his 70s. And um, he was the son of a sort of uh, Bugatti's second wife, so he's quite a bit um, younger than Bugatti's other children. And he um, inherited the watch when he was only sort of two or three years old. But um, he um, he kept it for you know many years, <clears throat> and he even put a bracelet on it. Uh, you know, a Milanese bracelet, a sort of mesh link, and he, uh, and apparently he did that because he wanted to sort of sort of cement the association between the Italian aspect of Bugatti, or the Bugatti was made in France, it was an Italian family. And then somehow this watch uh, went out of this possession, ended up in, a, in an auction house. This guy bought it, and um, they did, as I say, they did all the research, and uh, and it proved to have been a Tory Bugatti's watch, and um, and it sold for two hundred seventy-two thousand euros last year. So quite amazing, really. But also, you know, fascinating that there were so few of these things made, um, and they really have become a collector's piece. Because, as I say, you know, fifteen years ago, you could pick them up for three thousand, four thousand uh, pounds euros. Um, so that's really where it all started, you know, that's where the car watch, as far as I know anyway, that, that, that he was the instigator of the idea of the car watch. Amazing, amazing. And, and I mean, as, as things have, uh, as, have developed and, and over time, and I guess particularly through the 1950s, where, where lots of uh, tool watches um, were, were made by, by brands such as Amiga, etc., I suppose the the functionality and, and the style of, um, of 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 the racing watch, the, the car watch, was kind of crystallised. So you you would have a watch that obviously had a had a stopwatch function, a chronograph function, um, and and a, and a tachymeter bezel, um, which would which would allow you to um, to tie to um, start stopwatch and then run maybe a kilometre or a mile and then read off the off the bezel or the or the tachymeter scale under under the dial what the average speed was. So. Um, they were all they were all great functional aspects to to, to car racing. Exactly, but it, I mean, it all went back to um, you know almost right back to the beginning when when people started to decide that um, it would be good to have a special watch for driving, even if it was only special in terms of um, as with the media, it, it demonstrated to people that you had a car. But then, as time moved on a little bit, uh, people wanted to uh, be able to tell the time when they were driving. And obviously, in the sort of twenties and thirties, the roads weren't metal like they are today. They weren't smooth. Um, the suspension on cars was obviously not not like it is today. You know, it was cart springs more or less. Steering was wandering all over the road, very heavy. So it really was sometimes quite difficult. If you suddenly want to know what the time was, to so sort of take your hand off the steering wheel and to look at your watch, you know, conventional watch on the top of your hand. So the idea was, uh, the idea came up to make watches that you could read while you were driving. So instead of being on the, on the back of your wrist, they'd either be on the side or on the, on the inside, inside. Uh, so not on the top, either side or on the inside. So, um, you have various companies. There's one called Craftsman who made a very nice watch that went on the, on the side of your wrist and it was completely curved. Um, so they sort of sat perfectly on the side. Um, Cartier did a similar watch, and also Patek Philippe, in fact. But the but the one that people are interested in today is the um, the Vacheron Constantin. 
it's called the uh, American 1921. It's called it's called that because it was uh, you know it was, it was introduced in 1921. So um, and last year I think Vachon produced some centenary editions of the watch. But the interesting thing about that was is that the um, the dial was turned um, about 15, 15 degrees, I think. So um, when you looked at the watch, it would appear that it was sort of facing directly in the in the correct position while you were still holding a steering wheel. Because um, obviously, if you had an ordinary watch, it would be the the, the twelve would be sort of slightly too high. So um, that is quite a significant um, development in in sort of driver watch functionality, I suppose. Um, not everyone agrees that it was actually a driving watch. Some some people think it may have been um, just produced as a literally as a gimmick um, to be to be something different. But um, Vacheron claims that that's what it was for. Um, Interesting. Yeah, because yeah. it's a cushion shaped case, isn't it? And the crown is a kind of where you would have one o'clock. It's on one the top top right hand corner, exactly, yeah. as it were. Um, and I mean, it's. Um, it's it's a very iconic design for them. Obviously, if it's been around since 1921, um, and obviously, I think Vacheron have always had a bit of a, a thing for making unusual shaped cases, and, and maybe that's yes. where it started. But it's a it yeah. is a fascinating watch, and and it's great that it's still in the collection today. Um, exactly. But if you if you do wear that watch on the on the back of your wrist, it, it does work as a you know if you imagine holding a steering wheel, and you just glance across. Um, it, it does actually does actually work. So maybe maybe it's not a Maybe it's not a made-up story. No, no. Well, well you, you, like there are so many fascinating stories in the world of watch, isn't it? And I really hope most of them are true because they uh, they kind of uh, they kind of meet and drink to a bit of an anorak like me who, who enjoys all this sort of stuff. Um, I, and one of the other things about um, about sort of racing watches um, was um, the perforated strap or the rally strap, you know, strap with straps with holes in, um, which I guess was for comfort when you were, you know. Fire, racing a car and getting warm, etc. Exactly, yeah. If you're sort of in a, in a, you know, if you are racing a car and you've got a, a solid leather strap on, there's no, there's no. It, it, I mean, it does even on a hot day, you know, and you wear an ordinary watch strap, you do feel it, don't you? You can feel it's a little uncomfortable. But those perforations, I suppose, let a bit of air circulate. And uh, but the person who um, had the most interesting take on that was Sterling Moss, who, as you know, he very sadly died last year, but. Um, he had a, a bracelet made uh, because when he used to race, you know, the, the sort of cars he was racing in the sixties um, and fifties, a lot of there was a lot of oil coming to the cockpit quite often, and you know the watch strap would get ruined almost straight away. So um, he asked somebody, he commissioned somebody to make him um, a bracelet, which was it was two strands of metal coming from the lugs, one each side, very simple with a clasp. So it was more or less completely open. But just had these two strands on either side of uh, one for each pair, each pair of lugs, and then a clasp. And that way, you know, at the end, he could just he could just wipe it clean very easily, and it wouldn't it wouldn't get uh, damaged at all in the way that another bracelet would. So that was quite. And um, and actually, one of those one of his watches came up for sale. It was um, I think it was a JJ uh, last year, um, and that was sold at auction. I think it made something like fifty, forty or fifty thousand um, pounds with the bracelet on it. Would would that have been a reverse or was it a round watch or was it? No, it was a round watch. Okay, round watch. Yeah, interesting. Because he, um, yeah, he wore he wore various various different types of watches. He he wore Chopin for a while actually, 
you know, because he uh, obviously he, he held the, the record for the for the mini mini, and I think he he saw the association there with, with Sherpa, which we're going to talk about a bit later, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Fascinating. Excellent stuff. So we kind of understand a little bit about the functionality of, of, of the of, of the racing watch. You, you did ask about the you asked about um, the tachymeter scale and the the chronograph and so on. Which I haven't really mentioned that, but it's, you know it's well known that sort of during wars you know, things develop quite quickly. And um, in the First World War, that was a, the, the beginnings of the of the, these scales, the tachymeter scale and the telemetric scale. The, the telemetric scale is was used by uh, artillery officers, you know, to gauge the distance of a, of a sh- of shell fire and, and how, how far they, they, they could use that to work out how far to project a shell. And they were generally on the, in, they were on the inside of the dial and, and worked from, from the normal hands. Um, and the, uh, a similar thing was a pulsometer scale that was used by, by doctors. Um, the, the tachymeter scale was just a development of those two, which enabled you to work out sort of speed and distance calculations in, when you were moving along. So um, that's where that's where all that came from, and um, yeah, and the, and the chronograph, which obviously had been around on pocket watches before, but it, it eventually was a, a means of found to make it small enough for a wristwatch. Um, they were first really used in car racing right back in the in the forties, um, and there's one particularly interesting uh, Rolex. Which I mean, we all think today of, you know, Rolex watches making huge amounts of money, but it it was only ten years ago that the the, the Rolex first made a million dollars, which I mean, obviously is a huge amount of money for a watch, but nowadays it's quite commonplace. But um, that watch is very interesting from our point of view because it was a, uh, a chronograph. It's a reference four double one three, and it was the only split seconds chronograph that Rolex have ever made. And there's a bit of a mystery surrounding the watch because only around uh, 12 have, have ever turned up. And as people have bought them and they've looked into the history of them, it's turned out that all of them have been associated with um, with uh, a race in Sicily that happened during the 1940s, uh, which was called the Automobilistico di Sicilia, which is better known as the Targa Floriana. Um, and anyway, all these watches that have turned up, um, I think only eight of the 12 have actually noticed survived. But they've all been connected with this race in one way or another. You know, they've been owned by drivers or they've come from, you know, um, people that have had specific cars that have been in the events. Um, and it's basically thought that they were specially made for for this race. So people could use the, 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 chron- the split seconds chronograph for timing laps and timing team, you know, the differences between team cars and so on. So, um, so yeah, that was the first million dollar Rolex. Was a, wow. was a car watch. It is, yeah, obviously. very much so. Wow, incredible. Only 10 years ago, yeah. 11 years ago. Gosh, amazing. So um, I suppose one of the other brands that uh, we should we should talk about in the, uh, that's that's got a, a huge links to, to motor racing is, is Hoyer or, or latterly Tag Hoyer, but um, but really uh, from the 1930s, I think they were they started to be involved in in motorsport. Um, yeah, well, the the dashboard uh, timer was made by by uh, by Hoyer in the 30s, which obviously was a more of a more of a car clock than a not a wristwatch, but um, 
it was in the in the 60s really when um jack Hoyer, who was the uh i was getting it wrong he said the, the grand great grandson of the founder wasn't he um when jack Hoyer uh got involved in the business he really saw an opportunity um which nobody else had actually seen for this sort of tie-in between cars and watches to be really well exploited in the watch in the watch business and um apart from the fact that he um he was the first watch brand to sponsor the formula one team which is ferrari which is in the 60s and 70s um he produced two watches uh which um have become really sort of historic in terms of the, the whole history of Hoyer and or Tag Hoyer as it is now. One of which is the Monaco, which um, <clears throat> sort of became famous um, for reasons other than existing. <laughs> it really became famous strangely because um, you know, it was worn by Steve McQueen in a film nothing to do with Monaco, but in a, in a film to do with Le Mans, to do with the Le Mans race. And um, Jack realised that if he could supply watches to a film like that, it, had the, it would build up the car collection. So he um, he sent a lot of watches down to the the, the film set, and the um, the props manager um, had a, a selection of them. I think he had an Octavia, he had Carreras, he had a Monaco, or a few Monacos. Um, but according to Jack, the the Monaco wasn't selling terribly well, so they sent more Monacos than anything else because they had plenty of them spare. And um, the story is that Steve McQueen wanted to wear an Omega, um, but obviously he had racing overalls on, that were based on the um, the overalls that Joseph wore, who was sponsored by by Hoyer. Um, and somebody obviously realised that you can't really wear an Omega watch and have these Hoyer overalls on, so he selected the the Monaco and wore that the square case Monaco. And it only just come out because 96, the film was made in, um, it was released in 1970, but made in sort of 69, 70. And um, he wore that watch and it was, you know, quite prominent in, in parts of the film, you know, when he's sort of taking his crash helmet off and so on. I think the promotional material that's been used since has been slightly enhanced in terms of how prominent it was. <laughs> but he definitely wore the watch and um, he actually gave. Uh, one of the, there were several sort of watches used as, as props in the film, but he gave one of them to um, to his mechanic, who um, who worked on the film and kind of worked because I mean he did do a lot of the driving and it's important that the cars were you know catching good conditions. So, um, so he gave uh, one of these watches to his mechanic at the end of the of the film, and uh, again that was sold uh, a couple of years ago. And exactly how much that made, I can't remember, but it was more than two hundred thousand dollars. And he had all the provenance with it as well, you know, he had the letter from the Queen and the rest of it. So. Um, yeah, but the, the really interesting uh, watch, to my mind anyway, uh, from, from Hoyer, or Tag Hoyer, um, is the Carrera. Um, and again, that was Jack Hoyer sort of realising that there was potential in the romance of, a, of racing. Um, and I think he was at the Sebring 24 hours. Uh, in 1963, and he met the um, the parents of a two racing Mexican racing brothers called the Rodriguez, and he met their their uh, their mother and father in the pit lane. He was chatting to them, and um, they weren't particularly uh, successful as Formula One drivers, but they they were um, quite good endurance racing drivers as a result of having taken part in this Carrera Panamericana. 
And um, he was apparently sort of totally enthralled with the story that the, the parents told him about this crazy race across America, which um, when it originated, it was, it was to sort of christen the Pan American Highway. And anybody could take part in it. You know, there were taxi drivers in it. And in fact, one of the rules was you had to drive a, a sedan. You couldn't have a sort of super sports car. You had to drive a sedan. Yeah. So these taxi drivers and so on took part and just general members of the public. But um, it gained so much publicity that um, pretty soon well-known drivers were taking taking part. And um, and it became romanticised, you know, partly because of the danger of it, because it literally was a sort of no-holds-barred race across most of Mexico and um, <clears throat> Jack Hoyer you know he loved this story and the romance one he loves the name as well the, the Carrera name which it just it means race I guess in, in Spanish and coincidentally Porsche ad adopted it as well for their um, for their uh, their speedster uh, sports car mm. and the, the 356 as well first of all and so it was a name that obviously you know was already resonating as having something to do with speed and excitement and performance and so on. So he thought that that would be a great name for a watch, which which I agree with him. I think it is a good name for a watch. And um, the original Carrera came out, I think, in December 63. And um, that whole sort of, that to me is the sort of linchpin of the, the Tag Heuer um, lineup, you know, because it just says everything about Tag Heuer's racing history and the sort of... Um, the use of the, of the chronograph and as a tachymeter scale on most of the watches as well. But I mean, it's, it's evolved into a much wider line of watches than it originally was, but um, that's where it all started. It, it, I mean, it certainly has. And um, I mean, that, that the Carrera Pan America race, as, as, you, as you were mentioning, I think it was only relatively short lived because 27 people died over five years or something. Was it an annual event? I mean, a huge amount of people died. Yeah. There were some amazing accidents. There was a German driver, Mercedes team, and um, he um, he was pelting along the road at something like 130 miles an hour, and a, a buzzard went straight through the windscreen, hit him in the face, and went out went out of the back. Which is why, if you see pictures of the cars um, racing in in the 50s, towards the end of the era of, of the original race, a lot of them have a, a sort of grill over the over the over the windscreen, or even just a sort of um, kind of a a, a, a a sort of netting, um, and that's you know because it's so common for animals and birds and to go through the windscreen. Unbelievable! But, um, yeah, <laughs> amazing. But but you're right. But it has been has has been revived though since, and um, it's still a race. But um, and it, and still people have accidents in it, even though it's you know it's now for classic cars. But a lot of these cars are extremely fast and un unlike a lot of classic um, car racing you can modify the cars in any way you wish as long as the basic shape and um, <clears throat> somebody said to me that, that there's a, a very famous uh, racer who uh, who's won it many times in, a, in a, a Plymouth and somebody once said to me until you've heard him driving through the, there's a particular canyon on, on the race very long canyon until you've heard his car going through there at 170 miles an hour and you haven't Wow. <laughs> Amazing, but uh, you're right. I mean, the Carrera obviously still exists in the um, in the current tag collection, um, and and they have. I think they launched it last year. The particular Carrera Porsche. Uh, it seems obviously the ideal tie-in because of the name, as as you've already yeah. explained. Um, yeah. And and that 
um, I mean that sells incredibly well these days, about five thousand pounds, and it it looks like a proper proper sports watch, a ceramic bezel, and all all the usual stuff that you'd expect to see on a, on a on a racing watch, chronograph, etc. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's uh, that that long longevity of the name um, and that whole romance about the race, etc. Is a uh, you know is is still expressed today through that collection. We were talking earlier, weren't we, Mark, about the um, about the Mido watch and um, talking about sort of these watches sort of selling for, for big money at auction and that there are a couple that um i'd love to go back go back to that subject and mention them one of which is um a patek philippe <clears throat> which um it's called the trossy legenda that's what we call it now anyway and the interesting thing about it is that it was made in the uh probably late 20s possibly early 30s and uh, as as you know, Patek Philippe has never really made big watches. You know, even I think the biggest watch in their lineup now is probably about forty millimeters, maybe forty one. Um, but um, this watch was made, as I say, in the sort of late twenties, early thirties, and it was unusually big. Um, you know, back then, I suppose most men's watches are probably about thirty four millimeters. Um, this one's forty six millimeter case. And I think it, I'm right in saying it's it's one of the two or three largest wristwatches ever made by Patek Philippe of any type. And um, it was a um, a single button chronograph. And the original owner was this chap, um, Felice Trossi, and he was the very first president of Scuderia Ferrari. And um, the interesting thing about it is that he was pictured on the cover of the Scuderia magazine wearing his watch, which he had over the top of his cuff, his shirt cuff. And and that's something that everybody thinks, you know, um, Gianni Agnelli, the Fiat boss, he, he used to always do that. And he, was, he was sort of famous for it and is very often attributed with um, having the, the idea you know, to wear a watch in that way. Uh, but it seems like he wasn't the first. It seems like it was just this chap, Count Trossi. Anyway, his, his watch turned up at auction um, in 2008 and it made uh, 2.2 million, which at the time was a serious amount of money. I mean, it, back then, Pateks were making over a million, but it was a relatively rare um, occurrence. I mean, now it's, you know, most auctions, they have a few million pound watches in it. I, I, I have no idea how much it would be worth now, but I would imagine that it, you know, at least five times as much because it is so rare. But the interesting thing about it is that nobody really seems to know where it went. Um, there was some speculation that uh, Ralph Lauren may have bought it because he owns an incredible car, um, a Mercedes-Benz SSK, which was built for Count Trossi around the same time as this watch was made. But um, apparently he doesn't own the watch. Um, so where it is... Who knows? But if anybody listening does know, it'd be incredible to find out. <laughs> yeah. Yes, <laughs> it would, wouldn't it? My goodness, exactly. yeah, that's uh, antique yeah. roadshow stuff, isn't it? Almost incredible, oh, God, amazing. Um, one of the other brands, then, obviously, um, Simon, that, that has um, had a, a, a great history with with racing and speed is Rolex, of course. Um, going back to Malcolm Campbell in the thirties with the Bluebird. Exactly. Well. Um, he was a sort of a very early, they call them testimonies, don't they, Rolex? They don't call them ambassadors. Or yes, of course. Testimonies. But yes. um, he wore um, 
he, he was a big Rolex fan. He wore uh, his Rolex for some of his land speed records. And um, I think after one of them, you know, he one of the first things he did was to uh, to get out of the car and say, you know, I've had my Rolex on. I've done 301.337 miles per hour down Bonneville Salt Flats. And um, my watch is running perfectly, which is quite a good advertisement. <laughs> um, not that it would probably suffer very much, just, you know, if there'd been an accident, it would be a different kettle of fish. But <laughs> if you're just sitting still in the, in the driving seat, I suppose, uh, but it's still quite something for a watch to, you know, travel at that speed and um, still be working properly. Um, so, yeah, but the Rolex history of the racing really got underway in the in the late 50s, about 1959, because that is when the, um, the Daytona Speedway was opened. And um, there was a race there called the Daytona 500, which is a you know, 500-mile race around the circuit. And um, Rolex began uh, offering uh, watches to, to the winners of the race. And um, <clears throat> that was actually probably five or six years after the circuit was first opened. Um, and then subsequently, the, the, the watches known as the Cosmograph, which it still is. But it was only in, um, in the mid-60s it came to be called the Cosmograph Daytona, because um, Rolex USA said, you know, this watch is becoming so popular um, and so linked with motorsport due to Daytona and the drivers being being given them that um, you know we think it should be called Daytona. So that's why the watch has sort of got two names. It's a Cosmograph Daytona. Um, it's been called the Daytona ever since. And um, it's been worn by some you know very famous racing drivers, particularly Sir Jackie Jackie Stewart, who is I think along with Arnold Palmer, um, not counting um, not counting Malcolm Campbell. Uh, Jackie Stewart and Arnold Palmer were the very first Rolex ambassadors or testimonies, going right back to I think 1964. And um, Jackie Stewart still is, you know, he still wears his Rolex and he's still a spokesman for for uh, for the brand. So um, it is incredible, really, isn't it? Talk about loyal. Um, but of course, the most famous, I think, I think the most famous Cosmograph Daytona is the one that was. Um, sold at auction in 2017 by Philips, uh, which made the unbelievable price of um, $17.5 million, <laughs> which uh, it's still difficult to sort of comprehend that, but um, as much as we like watches, but it does seem a bit steep. <laughs> but, um, but the great story with that is that um, it's probably fair to say that the Cosmograph Daytona is the most collectible watch in existence. I mean, there isn't really anything else that people, um, other than, you know, super high-end collectors who want to have a, a, you know, one or two or three Patek Philippe's made or something really exceptional. As a general, what you might call a, a sort of mass-produced watch, that is undoubtedly the, the most collectible. And um, within that, the sort of subsector that is even more collectible is the Paul Newman Cosmograph Daytona, which... Um, is a version of the watch with what was called by Rolex an exotic dial, which you could go to a dealer and you could request this exotic dial rather than the, the standard one. And I suppose for people that can't picture it, it, the best way of describing it is it's a much more, in a way, a more plain dial. The, the dial's more, le less cluttered, 
um, typically a white background with um, black subdials or, or the other way around. And um, this exotic dial wasn't particularly popular, so relatively few were made. And the reason it came to be called the Paul Newman is that um, Paul Newman made a motor racing film called uh, Winning. And as a result of making that film, he became very keen on the idea of becoming a racing driver, which he did you know, successfully. Um, and when he, uh, when he took up racing, um, his wife, Joanne Woodward, gave him one of these watches. <clears throat> um, I don't know if she specifically bought it because it had this dial, but it just happened to have what has come to be known as the Paul Newman dial. And, um, and he wore that watch and was picture with it quite frequently. And he subsequently gave it to a friend of his daughter's um, who had helped him build a summer house in his sort of country country home. And um, <clears throat> this, he was only a kid, I think he was, uh, he was 17 at the time. And the story goes that Paul Newman said to him, you know, what time is it? He said, I don't know, I don't have a watch. And back at the house, Paul Newman took his Cosmograph Daytona and gave it to him. <clears throat> And um, he cleverly hung on to it until the hype around the Paul Newman Daytona had built up to boiling points and then offered it for sale in, in 2017 and made that unbelievable price. So, but it does, that has a nice sort of, it, it's a sort of, um, you've got the obvious connection with, with Daytona, with, the, with that particular watch. Um, the fact that it was Paul Newman's and the fact that Paul Newman, he genuinely was a successful racing driver. He had a very successful, um, the Newman House racing team uh, was very successful. And, you know, he, because all, I think you'd agree that a watch is just a watch, really. But if it's got a story behind the, the make or the model, it, it fires people's imagination. They want to own it, don't they? So, um, Mm. They they really do, yeah, and 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 never so more evident than today, where where a steel Daytona, I mean it's what eleven thousand six hundred pounds these days. I mean the the waiting list is is still off the off the off the off the charts, really incredible. Yeah, exactly, yeah, and I, I guess a lot of that is down to um to that Paul Newman dial because that's the one that people got so yes. fired up about, and then it sort of mm -hmm. when people knew they couldn't get hold of that, they wanted the next best thing and. And then when they couldn't get the manual wind Daytona because it was too expensive, they then wanted the mm -hmm. automatic wind with the Zenith movements. And you know, one minute people were saying, yes. "Oh, you don't want the automatic one," and then now, <laughs> now it's what <laughs> everybody wants. So uh, it's all a matter of it's sort of predicting the future. I think with watches. Yeah, yeah. If only we could. Yeah. Um, incredible. And I, and I guess again, another icon really um, is is Amiga with the Speedmaster. Um, I mean, people obviously today think of it more or less as, you know, it's commonly known as the moon watch, but that's not really what it was designed for. You know, it was, um, I think you've called it the first uh, modern day racing watch. Um, and you alluded to about the tachometer bezel as well. Well, exactly. Well, it was. I mean, the, the, um, the, uh, the moon watch aspect is, came much later. You know, the watch had been around for more than a decade, but when that came about, but in 1957, when it was launched, it was specifically launched as a driver's watch. Um, or it seems that way. If you, if you look at some of the advertising, um, I've, I can, I've actually got the text here from one of the adverts and it showed a lovely line drawing of two people in a, a sports car. 
1957. And the script that went with the with the picture was um, it said our picture shows two sports car enthusiasts racing the clock. And the clock being no clock at all, but the new Omega high precision wrist computer. And when the co-driver stops the large second hand at the end of the test mile, he reads off the glance of time as well as the speed. The latter on the taco productometer meter etched into the rim of the case. Um, now that, what they mean there, that's the first um, outer taco vessel. vessel. Yeah, taco yeah, yeah, vessel, yeah. exactly, yeah. Uh -huh. um, Tachometer is a bit more, trips off the tone more easy than taco productometer, doesn't it? So. I'd never heard it called that before, no. <laughs> but I can see why it changed. <laughs> yes. Um, but no, that, that, you know, that shows that that watch is specifically made for, um, for drivers originally, but it just so happened that, uh, you know, it was the one that passed all the tests that, uh, that, that NASA put it through and um, it's now famous as the Moonwatch. Indeed, indeed. Um, I, I mean, the, um, the, the, the Speedmaster is a, I mean, it's such an iconic, iconic watch. It's one of the best sellers that we that, that still still sells from Amiga. Um, and they recently updated it last year. They improved the movement with a coaxial movement, and um, um, it, it, it's just a beautiful thing. That lovely black dial and the and the and the, the subdials, etc. It's, it's a great watch. Like I don't know, five thousand seven hundred pounds um, with the with the um, Hesselite crystal. Um, just amazing. Uh, just a, just a terrific watch. And also in, instantly, you know, recognisable as more or less, I mean, there are various versions of it now, but if you want to have one that looks just like the original, you can you can get that kind of, you can even get it with the same movement. Yeah, you can indeed, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you're right, It's um, it, it looks like it's from 1957, but it's got a modern engine now, uh, which is, uh, yeah, it's quite, quite, a, quite a thing. Just to demonstrate what a driver's watch that was, uh, I, a friend of mine, uh, someone called Alan Decadene, who was, um, he had a, a Le Mans, uh, uh, entry in the, uh, in the in the 70s and has made a career from you know racing and um, sort of presenting television programs about cars and he was driving to the Nürburgring uh, from somewhere in uh, in Switzerland with a race car on the back and went through Zurich and he wanted an Omega Speedmaster so he went into a jeweler's and he could just walk into a jeweler's and buy the watch he wanted <laughs> and um, he went in there and he bought two Speedmasters. Um, and I think he said there was about 30, 32 pounds each, something like that. And the reason he bought two is because he was driving to the Nürburgring to race uh, and he was going to get there a few days early. And he'd arranged with someone from the area who knew the circuit very well to teach, to teach him the circuit. And in exchange for uh, teaching the track, he gave him the other Speedmaster. But he's kept his... Um, his own one ever since, and that's been his only watch uh, for the, more than fifty years now. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great timepiece, really is amazing, amazing. Um, and I guess, I, I'm, um, and one of the other um, one of the other important kind of um, brands that associate themselves with, uh, with 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 racing is uh, is, is Chopard and the Mille Miglia race in Italy. I mean, that's a, a long established race. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's another one. A little bit like the Panera. Panamericana um, that ran for a long time, but there was a horrendous accident in uh, in 1957, and um, I think 10, 10 people were killed, um, and so road racing was banned in Italy as a result of that. Um, but by that point, those Sterling Mossad um, had set the record 
because uh, Mille Minia, it, it's called a thousand miles because um, it's actually a thousand Roman miles is the length of the, even though they use kilometers in, <laughs> um, they call it there, I guess it's just a nice name, but um, but he had, he had covered that distance um, in his Mercedes SLR in, in around 10 hours. So, you know, a thousand miles is an average speed of just under a hundred miles an hour. <laughs> Quite phenomenal, really. With um, his passenger was a man called Dennis Jenkinson, who is a, a journalist for Motorsport Magazine, and it's it's widely regarded that his account of the of doing the Minimania with Moss is one of the sort of greatest pieces of motoring journalism ever written, and it really is quite phenomenal. Um, he talks about how uh, Sterling Moss had realised, you know, that he could he could um, take a bridge in this car at 125 miles an hour, but he could probably do it at 135, but he, he felt over 125 and felt too dangerous. So <laughs> kept it <laughs> down to 125. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but um but that race, I mean it ran from the from the twenties until nineteen fifty seven for you know for almost thirty years. So it really is part of Italian sort of motorsport history. Um and it was revived a couple of times in the seventies, but then fully in um in the late eighties. In 1987, I think, and then in 1988, um, uh, Carl Schofley, who is the father of Carl Friedrich Schofley, who now is the um, the sort of co-president of Chopin, um, they're both mad keen, uh, mad on mad on classic cars, and so in 1988, um, they took part in the event and agreed to to be its sort of main sponsor. And um, part of that, they decided to make a, a specific millimeter watch every year, different way. Some of them have been, you know, some of them have made pocket watches and some of the early ones had quartz movements, but they have made a completely different watch every year ever since. And um, I think it's true to say that Carl Friedrich has taken part in the millimeter every year since 1988, so he's done it. And I guess this year will be the 34th, 34th time, which, uh, I don't think anybody else has got that record. But, um, but the watches are very, they're, they're always different each year and um, I'm wearing one now as it happens. Um, and um, one of the features of them, they have a, a tire tread strap, which is the, 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 the strap is based on the, the tread of a Dunlop racing tire, 70s racing tire. Um, and the one I'm wearing is a special edition because there's a part of the course called the Raticosa Pass, which is, it's one of the few bits of the of the entire course that was um, part of the original event, and so they've made a an addition called the Raticosa, which um, is sort of engraved on the back with a little drawing of the pass and so on. But um, no, they've become totally associated. The Minamilia and Chopin are kind of, you know, you don't say one without the other nowadays. And um, I think part of the, the entrance, you know, the, the the entry fee is quite high for the race, and Every team is given a mini mini a Chopin mini mini watch, and it's engraved with the number of their um, the entry number of their car. I don't think they always appreciate that the fees are high because they're actually the watch isn't entirely free. Strictly speaking, it's they're sort of buying it in the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, that's um, true. Yeah, but it is it is a it's a great collection actually, great collection, yeah. and mm -hmm. a fantastic souvenir of the events. I mean, it's it's although it's no longer a race because you know, you know racing on the road is not allowed in that country anymore, but um. It's a time trial, they call it. 
which is a good opportunity to use the sort of chronograph and the chemical function on the watch. Um, although obviously you know, nowadays a lot of people have new electronic devices in the car that they can. But but, but I, I guess the cars that are in the race they're they're vintage, aren't they? I mean, that would make it more interesting the fact that they're they're challenging to drive perhaps because they're from you know years gone by. Yeah, amazing. Mm-hmm. So and I suppose coming 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 sort of right up to date then. Um, we, we can see that obviously the the association with speed and timing um i mean that's really really um expressed most strongly through um through through f1 racing today i mean rolex have been the the timing partner since 2013 um and obviously that's a that's a massive thing uh, a massive association for for, for rolex and, and and f1 and really gets their name out there yeah well rolex i mean they they really are the, I think it's fair to say they're very selective about the things that they sponsor. And if they, if they get involved in something, it tends to be a very, very long-term partnership. It's whereas some other brands, you know, they might go into something for a year or two. Um, I mean, a bit like what we were saying about Jackie Stewart, you know, he's been a testimony since the sixties and, um, they, um, and wrote, yeah, the sponsorship of Formula One, which is in terms of, you know, promoting a brand, there's no other motorsport defence which has the reach of Formula One because it's watched by you know, hundreds of millions. So um, it's likely they'll be they'll be the main sponsor of that for for many years, I would imagine. I, I would imagine. I would imagine too. And I guess within that. Um... Um, F F one umbrella. You have the teams, which have also got watch associations. I mean, you have um, IWC with Mercedes, um, and I think uh, Lewis Hamilton. He wears a big pilot sometimes. I think you see him there. There's another one uh, which has just started more recently, which is Bremont. As um, they've teamed it with Williams. You know, Williams the because uh, uh, Bremont watches uh, are made in uh, Henley on Thames in Oxfordshire. And the next county up is Northampton, which is obviously sort of Formula One Valley, you know, where all the, uh, nearly all the motor racing teams are, are based there. And um, the interesting thing about Bremont and their association with, with Williams is that they, um, there's actually a sort of engineering crossover because um, Bremont have got CNC machinery in their, um, in their factory or manufacturer or whatever you call it. Um, and that that sponsorship, as well as just sort of giving uh, supplying uh, watches to the drivers and putting a livery on the cars, um, there is some sort of engineering crossover and sort of sharing of ideas, and um, so that you know it sort of makes it a bit more authentic, I suppose, than uh, than just sticking a badge on the car and yeah. watch. Yeah, yeah, sticking a logo on. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I yeah, I, I I agree with you. Yeah. Um, I, and, and I guess I mean there's a relationship obviously between Richard Meal and uh, Ferrari and I think McLaren also, um, and Gerard Perigo with Aston Martin, which I believe started last year. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting one, the Gerard Perigo and Aston Martin, because they've uh, Aston Martin have had various sort of associations over the years. Um, the, the, the longest running one was uh, with Gigi, it lasted about ten years, I think. Which also it was interesting in itself because the um, Original Aston Martin uh, cars actually used Gigi instruments, and it was all part of the same company. Of yeah. course, they did. Yeah, uh, but then yeah. the, the, that mm-hmm. was split off. But um, yeah, the Gerard Perigo um, watch that's just it's the Laureato, the most recent one, isn't it? Yeah, correct. Yeah, that fantastic mm-hmm. um, d- deep green dial with the with the Aston logo. It's very subtly sort of worked into it. 
Yeah. Yeah, the kind of crisscross yeah. pattern, like like yeah, it's either the grill or the quilting on the upholstery or something. Yeah. I think they yeah. they were using that as an analogy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that was great. I think they only made 188 of those, and um, I can't remember how many we For had, sure, but yeah. they they sold yeah. out in a in a heartbeat. I mean, it's a great watch. Yeah, it's a really green green dials were were and still are quite popular actually. So I suppose that and that with the racing green. Yeah, they they, they certainly are, and and I, and I, obviously. Um, I think last year's winner of the uh, of the F1, um, the team was uh, was was Red Bull, and we have the um, uh, tag have just re- have just released the latest edition of the of the Red Bull uh, f- um, Formula One chronograph. It's a quartz watch. It's uh, I don't know. It's it's uh, two hundred meters water resistant, and it's it's a, it's a chronograph, obviously, um, and it's in the in the Red Bull livery, sort of a blue dial with yellow and and, and red highlights. It's a it's it's a great watch. That's a sort of entry. It's a, it's a way to get people into tags, sort of driving watches, I suppose, isn't it? Because it's an entry level yeah. piece. It's not sort of mm-hmm. hugely expensive, and then maybe yeah. move on to the Carrera or something later or Monaco. Exactly that. I think it's about eighteen hundred pounds. It's also I noticed, um, you know, because I, 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 I love looking at the pictures of watches. It's got the um, the kind of towards the bottom of the dial. There's kind of a white. Um, inverted L shape, which I think is how you'd line up on the grid. You know where you'd put your wheels on the grid. That's kind of just a, a little, like I guess, a, a rather little playful touch. But it, you know, it brings in the whole racing, the whole racing thing. Yeah, that is it is an aspect of watchmaking, isn't it? There's been uh, it, it does show the sort of crossover between the two, the two, the sort of mechanical similarities, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Because you know, the, the uh, makers have they've, they've made. Winding rotors in the shapes of wheels. And yes, yes, of course, yeah. Tub dials that yeah. look like clutch plates and things like that. So all of that and yeah. piston-topped pushers for the chronographs, exactly. all, yeah. all of those things, yeah. Um, and I guess that tags other associations with Ayrton Senna. Um, you know, they they obviously do it. They also do a, uh, I think, a, a watch that contributes the the, the Senna Foundation. Again, that's a that's a, a, a Formula One watch uh, with 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 a chronograph. Uh, very very cool watch. And again, it's got the Senna logo on it. And he obviously he was a a racing legend, really. You know, a lot of uh, Taikoya fans would love to see come back into the range. Is a version of the uh, the SEL that Ayrton Senna wore, which was. Um, <clears throat> a quartz analogue watch with an LCD chronograph, but he wore it in quite an unusual way because he had two metal link uh, bracelets on, that, on either lug, and attached to those, it was a custom-made leather strap. It was very, very distinctive. Um, and I think there's a, there's a version, it's not his actual watch, but there's a version of it in the Taipei Museum, which um, anybody listening who, who happens to be passing, passing through um, and going near the Taikoya manufacturer should really go and have a look at that museum because it's really quite fantastic in terms of um, the history of racing watches, car watches. I'm sure. Well worth a visit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, and and um, again, another, um, obviously, we're all we're all interested in uh, in, in, in ecology and, um, and and sort of green, green issues. And, and Zenith uh, have recently, uh, well, I think it was last year, started to be the timing partner of the Extreme E off-road electronic vehicle racing series. Um, so um, that that that's quite that's that's quite a thing, isn't it? I mean, the uh, it's sort of low impact low impact motorsport. Exactly. I guess. Yeah. Well, that was an amazing coincidence because it's uh, it's called Extreme E and uh, just happened to be at the time when Zenith had bought out their uh, Defy Extreme, which is sort of a, a super shock resistant um, watch, and I think. Um, 
yeah, it was just a happy coincidence that it came out around the time that the, the, the race series started. And um, I think the, the winners of each round uh, are awarded uh, as Energy Extreme, uh, Defy Extreme Watch. Um, but the other thing about that racing is that each team has to be one male and one female. So it's trying to sort of you know, diversify the racing world away from it's somewhat male dominated at the moment. But um, uh, yeah, and the idea is to you know, take take the series to to interesting places which also have a an ecological significance, an ecological significance. And, and the other unusual thing about it is, is that they don't um, they're no spectators. They're no you know people can't they're not flying people in from all over the place to watch it because that would sort of defeat the object of um, Having it as, a, as an eco event, but um, I did go to the one uh, in Dorset last last uh, December, and it really is quite exciting. It really is. I mean, they're incredible machines. They're they're, they're big. These these off road buggies, and there's a lot of action, a lot of sort of air, getting air, and um, yeah, it's quite something. It's certainly not. Uh, you know, people say that a, a, a racing car with no petrol engine is is, is boring, but it's definitely not boring. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it must be in a way curious though, because there's a lack of engine noise. I guess. Um, yeah. You just got the noise of the tires or something. I don't know. It's quite a dramatic sort of uh, almost a sci-fi noise. You know, it comes from the electric motor. Ah. So it's a different type of noise. Yes. Yeah. Ah, incredible. Incredible. Um, so there we have. So we. So we have um, the sort of long history of of. of, of, of watchers and uh, and motor racing where we obviously timing is a is a sort of crucial uh, crucial element um and um, i mean that that sort of watch um you know the kind of racing watch appeals to, to to clients that we have today simply because i guess a chronograph is a useful function even in these you know modern days where people have you know telephones and and, and all that sort of thing um but they tend to be clear watches they've got all this romance and history associated with them um and i think um i think even the person who's got a casual interest in, in watches can get kind of caught up in all that in all, in all that kind of romance um and and they you know they sell incredibly well for us um and I, and I just sort of wondered um do you have a do you have a favorite um like racing watch either that's current or from any point in history well i must say i think my favorite um driving watch is probably the Carrera and I've got um, in the late 90s uh, when when Tag Heuer was sort of um, sort of starting to recognize its its history um, it, it brought back a version of the original Carrera and um, I have a, one of those watches and it's still one of the best it's, it's a simple design but it's just something really really attractive about it and uh, and it, it does have that feel you know that it's got a proper Sort of motorsport history with it, and the name, the Jack Jack Hoyer was, you know, he was such a clever sort of. He really understood the way people think. I really think he he, he understood the sort of things that would fire people's imagination and, you know, cause associations in the in in the mind. And that really is. You look at that name Carrera, it just makes you. Plus the fact that I've got a I've got a Porsche Carrera as well, so it seems to go quite well with it. Ah, okay. <laughs> That yeah. helps, yeah. But but he, he you had Seifert dials and and Jackie X associations and all, all those great races, didn't you? I mean, it's uh, so it kind of cements the cements the whole thing. Well, do you remember? Do you remember those fantastic watches that um, they made in the in the seventies? Uh, 
the, I think they were called the Easy Rider watches, and they were inside a. There was a whole series of them. There was a, there was a Jackie X one, a Joseph X one, and they were they came. They were kind of the version the the seventies version of what the F one is. F one watches mm-hmm. today. Ah, okay. They were mm-hmm. sort of affordable watch, and it came inside a little uh, a crash helmet, a little yeah. crash helmet box, ah, which okay. was an exact exactly the you know a replica yeah. of the of the driver, the specific uh-huh. driver. Fantastic, nice. yeah, yeah, fantastic. And, and I was recently, I was recently um, on a plane, um, and I managed to watch Ford v Ferrari, um, and they all looked to be wearing, you know, Tag Heuer Carrera chronos. In the, you know, that you could particularly see them, but they looked, they looked, and that would be right for the time, wouldn't it? I guess. Exactly, yeah, 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 yeah definitely, yeah. very yeah. much, because that was all yeah. about Le Mans and the, you know, the, the battle between Ferrari and Ford at the moment, GT forties. Yeah, it was a fascinating um, film, actually. Yeah. It was a really great yeah. film. Yeah. yeah. And the golf colours, the orange and uh, blue golf livery, which yep. um, they actually made a Monaco in that in that livery, didn't they? About ten years ago, special edition Monaco. They did, and and and, and I guess um, I, I think if I had to choose something, you know, you've picked a, the the Tag Carrera, I would go for the Monaco. Um, I don't have a cushion shaped, square shaped watch in my in my collection, so that that would be the one. I think the blue dial with the. Uh, with the silver subs, um, I think it's it's just such a cool looking watch, and um, you know I think Steve McQueen would be proud that I was wearing one, you know, <laughs> from his association yeah. his association with that watch. Okay, well, thanks Simon for the for the fascinating insights um, and uh, and observations you've made about the history of, uh, of of racing watches. I mean we we have we have lots of watches that um kind of fit those criteria in, in goldsmith's mappings and uh, and watches of switzerland stores in the uk and similarly mayors and watches of switzerland in the us uh, and you can also find lots of information online so um simon again thank you very much for your time thank you mark for, for inviting me thank you for listening to the caliber podcast we do hope you enjoyed it Please do subscribe and listen to other episodes on Apple Podcast and Spotify.